Being able to read and write is necessary to be successful in work, at home, and in civic life. Do parallel skills associated with critical reasoning from numbers and data carry a similar weight? What do you need to know to be an informed consumer of numeric information and to use such information? That's the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me as panelist, John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department. Richard Campbell is away. Our guest is Ido Gall, a retired associate professor and past chair of the Department of Human Services, University of Haifa. Gall enjoys multidisciplinary interests that span two fields of research and applied practice, the first being teaching learning and assessment of adult numeracy and statistical literacy, the second being managerial issues and service organizations in particular related to issues of empowerment. Gall is a past president of the International Association for Statistical Education and past editor of the Statistics Education Research Journal. He currently serves as a consulting editor of the Journal of Disability Policy Studies and associate editor of the journal Numeracy. Ido, thank you so much for joining us today. Sure. My pleasure. Just to get our conversation started, could you explain what numeracy is and why it became a research interest for you? Let me start from how it became a research interest for me. My original training was in uh, occupational psychology, and I uh, worked in the area of personnel selection for several years in large organizations in Israel before I got my PhD. And so I became very interested in the issue of skills and um, how people acquire skills and use them and how they behave uh, with the assistance of uh, different kinds of skill sets that they acquired. And uh, mathematical skills or numerical skills or anything that has to do with understanding of information is one of those cognitive skills. And uh, eventually I got my PhD in the area of decision sciences uh, or decision making and became interested in how people acquire mathematical and statistical skills, how they learn to reason about probability and and so on. And this is how I got into mathematics education and statistics education and, and so on. So this is the answer to the first part of your question. Very good. Well, well, you know, it is a. It, again, it's a delight to have you you with us. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, I think that this idea of studying and measuring and, and evaluating quantitative literacy skills or numeracy skills. There's so many ways that we talk about this. I mean, I, I when I was first introduced to thinking about these ideas, I started thinking. You know, there was it wasn't just statistical literacy. You know, reasoning from data. It's also some sense of magnitude comparisons. Also, some sense of, of kind of relationships. I mean, you know the. Mm-hmm. It, so I'm, I'm just curious, when, I, I, I don't want to dive into kind of these splitting the hairs that define these different groups, but, but when you think about numeracy, what does that entail? Yeah, so the notion of numeracy is something that has been with us for more than 100 years, and it relates to people's ability to cope with the mathematical and statistical demands of the world, and to interact with information, to critically interpret it, and if needed, to um, to talk about it, to communicate about mathematical information, and to take action in this regard. So numeracy is a complex competency that uh, involves both uh, cognitive knowledge, skills, and, and know-how, as well as attitudes 
beliefs and so on, because if you don't think that you have a good skill, you mm-hmm. may not actually cope with different situations, you will avoid them. And as we know, this is something that we have in, in mathematics and statistics very often. So numeracy is a, is a complex capacity and schools and education systems take some steps towards imparting it or developing it in people, but people very often develop the numeracy also through their practices, through their interactions with different environments, and they may grow or not grow uh, well beyond what they've learned uh, in school. And unfortunately, what we know is that many people are not well equipped to deal with all the mathematical and statistical challenges that reality throws at them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let me just do a quick follow-up to that. Uh, you know, one thing, when, when we think about literacy, the, the ability to read and write, if you did not have that, that would be viewed very negatively. But, but yet some, you know, you occasionally hear, you know, some people will speak almost with pride that they can't do math. Or that they, you know, in some sense, they're affirming their numeracy. I mean, why, why do you think that 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 distinction is? It, why is that acceptable? I think it's acceptable because it's uh, widespread, widespread, too widespread, <laughs> and yeah. and okay. it's it's the, almost the only area where we have a phobia, except for maybe uh-huh. computer phobia that is yeah. generated or created by educational system is the area of mathematical phobia or mathematical anxiety and statistics anxiety and so on. And I think this relates to the way we teach mathematics and statistics with students and learners depend a lot on on teachers. And so many people experience a negative uh, sense in this regard. I think I might have talked about this on the podcast before, but I... um, I had a deep, deep fear of math and stats for, um, you know, much of my childhood. I think part of it was around just having some teachers who did not communicate very well. And then by the time I got to college, just it felt very overwhelming. And then it was when I was in grad school and was forced to take the stats class as part of my PhD. And the professor actually made us like run correlations and linear regression by hand and sort of walked us through like the logic behind it and sort of, you know, what it helps you understand. As terrible as it was to sort of run those those formulas by hand, it gave me this understanding of of what it allows me to know about the world. And I feel, you know, obviously I'm hosting this podcast now <laughs> with John, and I which I would not do if I did not feel comfortable with numbers. But um, but it just definitely gave me this this sense of like, oh, if only someone earlier in my life had been able to sort of harness this kind of concrete kind of explanation of what this allows me to know about the world. You know, I might not have avoided certain classes in college. Maybe I would have changed my major or had a different kind of double major. Who knows what opportunities would have opened up if someone had been able to communicate like that, the way math works to me in a way that just sort of, you know, resonated. Right. I have had the same experiences when I was growing up. And by the way, I I wasn't very good at mathematics, but I discovered statistics as a kind of a, a much more logical organized um, area, and uh, it was easier for me to relate to it And uh, until I started using it uh, as an applied psychologist in uh, personnel selection, validation studies, and other things, and I discovered both the beauty as well as the complexities of communicating um, information. But, but let me um, relate to something that you said, Rosemary. Um, I think 
most of most educators, uh, whether they teach mathematics or statistics, and, and many of those who teach statistics are not statisticians. They come from the disciplines and they teach it in their their own context. Most of these people are interested in teaching statistics, whereas mm-hmm. what I think we should be focusing is on uh, what you need to do out there in the world when you encounter statistical and mathematical information mm-hmm. as a way to engage people. So to focus on the expected behaviors and mm-hmm. skills that you need and then build from it back uh, or backtrack into mm-hmm. the knowledge that is, that is needed. And so, for instance, in the world, citizens and even many workers uh, seldom encounter mathematical or statistical issues in the abstract. They encounter them usually embedded in a lot of text, in a lot of textual information, in articles, in, in uh, leaflets, and, and so on and so forth. But nobody prepares them to read and to think about mm-hmm. communication because the classes focus on the beauty of the abstract aspects of mathematics and statistics. Too often. So I'm curious, you know, in some of your writing, you you make this distinction between sort of critical and functional skills. Mm-hmm. Can can you expand a little bit on on what the what you mean by those two kind of labels? And then we, we can dive into some of these other areas of application as you as you yeah. described earlier. Sure. So many scholars have have worked. I'm I'm just one of um, many people who have been interested in the critical aspects of mathematics and statistics. So when you think of functional aspects, usually you think of uh, some some, uh, tasks that you need to deal with in the everyday world, uh, commercial transactions, paying, buying, um, uh, calculating things. And so there is a product that you need to produce, uh, some number, and uh, it may be it may have to be very precise, or it may it can be an approximation. And the only thing that you need is to think about whether you've done the calculation correctly. Did you make any mistakes? That's the critical part of things. But when you are a consumer of mathematical and statistical information, then you are exposed very often to information or to points of view, to arguments that others are producing, and they may use the numbers in a one-sided way or in a biased way or to their advantage. And there are many, many examples uh, such as, you know, whether you use percents or absolute numbers in order to bolster or hide a certain phenomenon. So you need to be able to interpret things uh, from a critical perspective. You need to know what questions to ask uh, about the source of the information, the interpretation that is provided and and many many other issues. Uh, nowadays, there are new domains that are emerging, such as uh, a sub-area about the uh, political science and, and quanti- quantification of the world and how uh, um, powers, societal powers use uh, numbers in order to hide or to um, bolster things that they want attention to and hide things that they don't want the public to be aware of. Uh, there is an area on the sociology on numbers and so on. So overall, um, people need to be able to be critical about many things. And usually we do not teach to be critical in statistics. I can elaborate on this if you want, but there are many, many examples for this. I have a question related to actually journalism. And I'm thinking through, given that people encounter statistical information and mathematical information often in news stories, sometimes local TV news, um, sometimes newspapers. I wonder what advice you would give to journalists to be able to communicate mathematical or statistical knowledge in a way that um, is critical and is informative for their audience, right? Because if we think of journalism as a public good, part of the work of journalists is to sort of make sure citizens are informed. 
Yeah. Well, I'll be very humble on this because there are quite a few uh, experts and task forces in journalism that have produced um, excellent guides for journalists. But the, the nature of journalism is such that many people drift into journalism without necessarily getting all the information or the support that they could. And maybe they took maybe one course in, in basic statistics, but they have not learned about the statistics of journalism. And mm -hmm. so my advice is that they should seek out the guides and the training manuals that are written for journalists about how to use statistics properly and how to report it pro properly, because most of them probably just don't know that these guides exist and that they should follow them. Uh, mm -hmm. I think this can improve much more than me giving a two-minute advice on uh, <laughs> what, what journalists can do. <laughs> you know, I, I also would suggest that that the collaboration with statisticians is a is another thing that we're both benefit. You know, a right. lot of times we think about collaboration in research mm -hmm. projects, you know, in, in scientific in inquiry, but I think there's a great opportunity for uh, for statisticians to to work with journalists. Clearly, I have a vested interest in this statement. I mean, you know, <laughs> But I really do believe John. this because I, th I think that there is a, a framing of argument that journalism brings that's, that's very instructive for, you know, kind of a statistical community. But then there's also a formalization of signal and uncertainty that's important for journalists to, to appreciate. Right. So uh, I, I would assume that naturally many statisticians and mathematicians that have to speak to journalists or to speak on, on, uh, in, on television interviews and so on, many of them will gravitate to professional jargon or they will make assumptions about what people understand and don't understand. And we've seen a lot of this uh, over the last year and a half during the pandemic in, in many countries. So some countries have established uh, panels or task forces that are responsible, of, and, and they have different names for this in different countries, but task forces responsible for um, responsible uh, reporting of science to the public. And they involve journalists as well as uh, statisticians mm -hmm. and, and so on. And, and so many journalists, they go to these uh, uh, panels or task forces in order to get uh, advice and to see how to interpret things properly. Um, but... Um, the nature of journalism very often is that it happens very fast, especially during the yes. pandemic, for yeah. instance. Things yeah. move very rapidly from reporting to the public. There is no time to digest and to filter and to um, um, modify the way some things are communicated. And because of this, the public will be exposed to information that might be vague or imprecise and on occasion will contain errors. Mm -hmm. And so the public needs to be aware of how the journalism machinery works and understand how news stories are created and edited and so on. Who decides on the on the header as opposed to the content and, and mm -hmm. so on. And, and, and so very often you see headers that are um, designed to capture attention. And so they put things in a more bombastic way. And because of this, they may distort certain, certain things uh, more than mm -hmm. the professionals would like them to be. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with University of Haifa's Ido Gall. Ido, I wonder what advice you have for educators, given the work you've been doing around numeracy and statistical literacy, about how to teach people to think about how to critically engage numbers. So you talked about sort of, you know, 
we can get caught up in the abstract beauty of math and stats. But sort of what what needs to be happening in the classroom to help people have a much more kind of, I guess, applied understanding um, in the context to be able to, you know, sift through the numbers when they encounter them in the real world. Right. So, of course, the, it's difficult. Um, the question is very important. I think that we, we don't have time to go into details <laughs> on this because, because there are different contexts within which people right. teach mathematics and statistics. Right. And yes. um, it doesn't fit everybody the same way. But I, to be very bold and maybe provocative, I would say that teachers need to, I think, devote 25 to 30% of total class time to engaging with the way statistics and mathematics are reported in different contexts. It may be in the media, it may be in professional publications, and to make sure that uh, learners are exposed to the way information is communicated, because eventually they will need to either produce such communications on the job, whatever job they go to, or they will need to be consumers of this kind of information. Mm -hmm. and, not just, and not just devote all the time to teaching procedures and statistical tests and so on. And to give you an example, okay, in statistics, for instance, we don't really teach students to be critical about statistical information. They may not even learn about uh, how statistics is used wrongly in the world or in a way that may distort certain phenomena. Uh, statistics students very often learn about error, for instance, uh, just in the context of learning about specific statistical procedures, such as that when you run a regression, so there is an error term or there is a, a variance explained and so on. But this is technical. How does it relate to a prediction that you predict when your company asks you to foresee, you know, to predict the sales figures for the next five or 10 years and so on? So, so the students need to engage with the actual task with which they will have to deal with uh, as graduates later on. Mm -hmm. um, and so the application needs to be taught in the context of tasks that reflect reality and not just provide abstract skills, assuming that later on, smart people will be able to apply it somehow. Because yeah. transfer, skill transfer, which is a cognitive term, skill transfer doesn't happen unless you train people on skill transfer. Hmm. You know, that's so you, you've hit a, a really, I mean, this, I, this distinction even between variability and uncertainty, sort of there's sort of fundamental concepts that, that are, are critical for carrying forward for people. You know, I wonder how, how often you get into the minutia of calculating something versus appreciating what you're trying to, to, to characterize. But I, but I want right. to get to, you know, you, you touched on this a little bit and then your, your, just your recent remarks also follow up with that. There's the need, though, to train the trainers. Uh. Because I, th I think it is I, – I love this suggestion about 25 to 30 percent of the time to be spent on kind of this connection. In some ways, that's, that's setting the stage. That's motivating. I've, I've often thought you have to open the hearts before you open the heads. And, you know, this type of activity really engages people into why they – it motivates and inspires. But, but how do we help – the, the, the people that are training to be these, the, the teachers at the, the secondary level, and, and actually even at the university level, to have this type of engagement. Right. Uh, well, this is an excellent uh, point, John, and actually a challenge for, for all of us. Uh, in the area of statistics education, only over the last 
10 or 15 years, we've seen some programs emerging that focus on the pedagogy of teaching statistics and that mm -hmm. are trying to educate people on how to teach statistics. I think the pioneering uh, program in the United States was at the University of Minnesota through mm. John Galfield and Bob Delmas and uh, their colleagues at uh, University of Florida now and, and Atlanta, uh, University of Georgia and several other institutions are now pushing forward with very impressive initiatives on the pedagogy of teaching statistics. But most of the people who teach statistics still come out of a graduate school. They may learn statistics. They may understand it well. They usually don't have any exposure on this. So I know that the American Statistical Association and a couple of other organizations, such as the Royal Statistical Society and the German Stochastics Group, are taking some steps in this regard. But this, is, this needs to be elaborated in many countries. And nowadays, we have the way to encapsulate this knowledge through uh, videos, through uh, MOOCs and other courses and through um, digital resources that can be accessed more widely because the principles are general and, and can be uh, now shared with the rest of the world in a better mm -hmm. way than they used to be before. While we're on this topic of, of education, I wonder, you know, if you could talk a bit about this um, article you co-authored about mega classes and how just maybe maybe talk through sort of what that article was about and sort of what you think the implications are coming out of it for education uh, in, in this area. Right. Well, uh, thanks. So, um, you know, a few years ago, I started uh, a collaboration with a colleague, Irena Ogrejanček from the University of Ljubljana in Slovenia, who, like me, is uh, working in, in two fields in the area of uh, service and tourism management uh, mm -hmm. and the economics of tourism on the one hand and in the area of statistics education. And so we've written several papers, but one of them was our effort to combine insights from the from the domain of service science and, and mm -hmm. service management and how to improve service systems uh, and apply to the area of statistics education. And we focused on uh, mega classes, hybrid classes in 2017. Mm -hmm. we, um, we published a paper uh, on this where we, we kind of foreshadowed something that we didn't know would happen later on because you know, in the early 2000s, we began to see mega classes in statistics education, huge mm -hmm. service courses in some universities yeah. being offered to hundreds or sometimes thousands of students. And then it was followed around 10 or 15 years ago with some MOOCs beginning to appear in several countries teaching introductory statistics to the masses. And so these are large service systems that serve very diverse populations, but they also face major failures because the percentage of people who actually graduate from them with good scores, uh, the percentage is very low. And so we began to ask ourselves, how can you improve these kinds of things? Mm -hmm. And how can you improve the value that the learners, the, the customers derive from the systems? And the problem is that uh, during the pandemic, we realized that all of the world was shifting into a mega class or a hybrid right. teaching uh, situation. And so what we realized is that there are many processes uh, that many educators are now engaged with that are flying under the radar of education systems. Traditionally, research in statistics education or attempts to understand what is happening in a statistics class, whether for statistics majors or for regular students, 
uh, research focused on understanding, on cognitive skills, mm-hmm. on uh, whether they got or didn't get certain points, or on attitudes. But there are many other things that happen that affect the, the quality and the resulting value that learners derive from it. Uh, for instance, um, self-management, you know, uh, learning uh, through the internet or learning in remote distance mm-hmm. education requires a lot of self-management and metacognitive skills that are very different than what students need when they sit in class and somebody looks them in the eye and when there mm-hmm. is a teaching assistant that comes mm-hmm. to them and they can look over the shoulder and so on. There is a lot of social interaction that is happening and bulletin Mm -hmm. boards on WhatsApp uh, lists on a lot of other um, uh, social media where students consult with each other outside uh, of this. So uh, there is a lot of dependency on technology and all of these things are not researched properly. So Mm -hmm. if you ask yourself, what do we know about the factors that affect the success of um, and and, and the, the products, the value that is derived by learners, we see that actually traditional research in statistics education covers only some of it, but a lot of the things are still not fully understood. Mm-hmm. And to give you one example, a lot of the interaction that happens uh, in a, in a, in a mega, mega class or a hybrid class is through text. Students send different questions by email or by Facebook or by whatever, and uh, the teacher or the teaching assistant is answering them. Nobody is analyzing these kinds of things uh, in the same way that we analyze customer interactions with the contact center in order to see uh, what questions come up, how do we learn from it, how do we design good responses to it, uh, you know, frequently asked questions and answers, and so on. So there's a lot that can be done on analytics of these kinds of courses, uh, text analytics, voice analytics, and, and so on, in order to understand uh, what are the things that affect uh, dropout. Not mm-hmm. just performance, but dropout and yeah. how to yeah. detect students are, who are about to drop out and identify them in exactly the same way that service organizations are trying to identify customers that are disengaging from the service provider and are uh, going to switch to another service provider. So methodologies, we don't have to invent them. We need to apply them and adapt yeah. them. Uh, but there is a lot that can be done. That's a, that's a really interesting idea of technology transfer from one field to a very unusually, maybe unexpected case. I, I, I really like the point that you made about the, uh, the self-management. Uh, it's, it's, it's sort of MOOCs are, are classic examples of lots of people start and very few finish. Yeah. And, it's yes. a, and you know, I've, I've, I've done that too. I've finished <laughs> some, but I've, I think I've probably f- uh, failed to finish more than I've finished. Although I think I've gained value, I've gained some of the value that I want, but I'm also a different kind of learner. And, um, you know, and I think about this in light of some of your interests of, of adult learning. And I'm, so I'm hearing a couple of things that are coming up. One is this idea of skills and self-management. I'm thinking about the idea of, of making sure that you engage in these domains. I mean, you talked about domains of financial health, digital, civic, workplace, Lots of areas where this occurs. I, I, just as, a, as I think about a kind of a last question, I wanted to, to loop back to where you're talking about functional versus uh, critical mm. application of skills. And, you know, I, when, when you were saying this, I was thinking about in terms of functional, one idea that comes to mind that for me, and see if this is, correct me if I'm wrong, that, that you know, if you were going to refinance your house, you're going to get a yes. new, you know, or if you're going to start saving for retirement, why do you start doing this early? Those are kind of decisions that you want to make. But, but also, there's, there's kind of 
the, these are not independent because I think about critical and functional in terms of should you get a vaccine? You know, yeah. you know that's that is both a functional component. You're you're critically consuming information and then acting on it. So can you just just you know kind of help uh, maybe uh, you know deconstruct that a little bit for us? Well, I can I can try. So so first of all, <laughs> <laughs> see we ask only easy things here. You know this. You know, yeah. you know she asks you all about how to fix that education, and I'm, and I'm asking you about decision making in life. So <laughs> you, you know, John, this is uh, and Rosemary. This is why we write papers that are a minimum of, of five thousand words so that we have enough <laughs> space. And here we need to enca encapsulate it briefly. But the critical and the functional they go hand in hand. Uh, yeah. Yes. You know, I, I still remember a, a story from a colleague of mine uh, that spent some time in Morocco uh, in the Peace Corps and how his, uh, his uh, landlord was an illiterate woman who was the shrewdest uh, bargainer in the market. And she <laughs> knew everything about numbers and she could, nobody could cheat her because she knew how to do a lot of things and to think critically about quantities and, and numbers and so on, even though she was completely irritated because for her, livelihood required that she is able to look back at herself or look from the side at herself and monitor her own understanding and monitor things and ask uh, about accuracy and and, uh, and and where she can be better. And, and so we all are illiterate in some way in some areas of life. We may not feel very comfortable with our own skills. Very often people may not know enough about commercial transactions or how to take a loan and how to refinance or calculate and so on. And people may not understand fully all the statistics that float around on, on the pandemic, and they may not understand what positivity rate is or, or, or why do they calculate seven-day moving averages and so on. But they should feel comfortable to ask questions about it and to seek mm. more information and, and seek explanations and, and guides on this. Uh, and they should be able to ask questions even if they don't know the domain. The whole point about cr being critical is that you don't feel that you know something a hundred percent, but you are able to ask questions. Can you explain more? Where does this number come from? How did you calculate it? And it happens in every domain of life. It happens in, in a medical field, you know. So uh, one of my relatives recently ran, went for genetic counseling and the doctor said to her, so for women in your age group, the risk of having the following side effect is between 30 and 40%. And she asked, so how do you know? Do you have statistics about women in my condition? She didn't know how they calculate it. She hardly knows what is a 30 to 40% risk because this is not something that anybody ever teaches anywhere. But she was able to ask the question and then the doctor began to mumble a little bit. <laughs> and, and, then the, and then there was a conversation that helped her to put things in perspective and get an appreciation for the fact that there were some risks and they were non-trivial, but uh, that she uh, could rely on, on medical practice and make decision. And she took the procedure in exactly the same way that we deal with the vaccine nowadays. You know, there are, there are people who are anti-vax or anti-any-vax or are hesitating and so on. And many of them just don't understand the numbers very well, or they rely on shady or questionable sources and they need to be able to ask themselves critical questions about these sources as well. And very often they don't because they maybe they don't trust the government, you know, uh, but they do trust somebody else and they don't question these other numbers. So the bottom line for this, John, is that 
we need to combine being critical and being functional in any and every uh, context of life. And we need to make sure that this is also part of education in mathematics and in statistics. And, and teachers need to realign some of what they do in this regard. And this will help, I think, make students and learners feel more comfortable with this because we they will see that the teacher is trying to relate to their feelings and to equip them with tools that are helpful, not just with technical uh, knowledge per se. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Ido, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Ido. Thank you very much. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net and be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.